what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Einswick Dogquip, who is our good friend Jason Furman, and we are recording him now a new ad because it's very exciting to announce that he has Firepaw Mills now. That's pretty cool. Yep. So it's another brand of mill that he has. So he still has the HF mills. You can get those from him. And he's a distributor now for Firepaw, which is, a, I think they're a UK-based mill. And he's got the spring poles as well, I've seen. Yep. Spring poles. Spring pole mounts. All that, all the good gear. So everything you can do if you're into the GRC side of thing, which is really starting to take off around yep. the world now. Yep. Jason's got a lot of that gear available yep. on his website. Well, not his website. He hasn't got a website. <laughs> he doesn't have a website. He does Facebook. Bloody Facebook. You got to find him on Facebook. Einswick Dog Quip on Facebook. Get yourself on a bloody website, Jason. You know, Squarespace. Not that hard. Yeah. If you need anything, really, he's a distributor for Herm Springer. He can get you branded leashes, tugs, balls. If you need it in dogs, talk to Jason. Yeah. He's great contact in the field. Get you whatever you need. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick. Einswick. <laughs> Hey, before we start the show today, we just want to mention, it's been tricky. We mentioned earlier that we were in a position to take on sponsors and we really only could do with the one because we haven't structured a business. We didn't know how to actually take any money off of anybody. But that's actually happening now. Yeah. So we've sorted that out. And so as you just heard the ad for Jason, Jason's in Australia and is now, as a lot of our listeners are in the US, if you're a person after just general dog equipment, then Jason can bring you in the big ticket items, the mills and those sorts of things. But if you just ask normal stuff, someone in America is probably a better opportunity than him. Yeah. And so if you are that person in America and you want to also have an ad at the front of our show, get in touch. Yeah. Basically for Jason, what the expense is, is the freight to get it over to you would be almost double what it's worth for the item itself. So if if there is a company in America that's interested in speaking to us about show sponsorship that could provide US citizens with those smaller items, please, by all means, get in touch with us and we can discuss that further. Cool. Let's begin. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today we have the honor and the privilege to have on the phone via Skype all the way from USA, Mr. Michael Ellis. Hello. Welcome, Michael. It's so good to have you on the show finally. Thank you so much. I'm sorry it was uh, such a chore getting me on, but uh, I appreciate your patience. Yeah, but uh, we know how busy you are. Like, as we were just talking about before, you've had quite a few students come over from Australia to do your course, and I know that you're inundated with people in your own neck of the woods. Where else do people come from to do your courses? Like, are you getting other people from different countries around the world? Absolutely. So, obviously, all over the U.S., quite a lot of Canadians come down. It's relatively easy for them. Mm -hmm. And then all over Europe. So, I've had students from England and Belgium and France and South America, Mexico. So, yeah, yeah, that's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, we don't awesome. have as many international students just simply because of logistics and 
costs for people to travel that and be away for those big stretches of time. But we do get them for sure. It's it's always, it's incredibly um, gratifying when you somebody's willing to fly halfway around the world to come see you. It's humbling a little. Well, I'm you know? sure they feel likewise that they actually get to sit in the classroom with you and spend some time one on one and and get to. It's called the immersion package or something. That's your that's your big one, isn't it? Yeah, that's sort of the flagship uh, now, uh, it, and it's a four and a half month long program. Wow. Yeah, um, that yeah. Basically, incorporates all of our classes plus extracurriculars and and some private coaching and things like that. So we I keep making it longer. I think when I started it, it was twelve weeks, and it's mm-hmm. uh, now eighteen weeks. And I don't know. By the time I'm done, it'll probably be six months long. <laughs> <laughs> a two year program ready to go. Well, I'll tell you what. There's nothing wrong with that as far as having a great curriculum that spreads across a good period of time that people can really get their hands on great knowledge from the get go. So rather than just getting dribs and drabs of information, they can actually work with you and get your feel for it. And I mean, you've been credited with being a a master trainer. So for a lot of people, that would be really exciting that they get to spend that one-on-one time or even that time that they're they're learning how to do it properly rather than a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They actually get to see how it unfolds and unpack the whole training system from the start to the finish. It's sort of the idea in a perfect world, right? So many people that are in my shoes we picked up our our knowledge over many many years and from different places and it comes in slowly and there's something to be said about that sort of slow organic process of education but i always dream of having a place that was like a doggy university like a doggy college right mm-hmm. where when you went there you got very detailed uh, training and practical work all at the same time uh, and, you know, if I hadn't, if I had my druthers, it'd be two years and it would be just like a program at university would be, but mm-hmm. obviously not logistically possible for everyone. So we try to br- break it up in a way that people can take it in little pieces and things like that. So, well, you could be the pioneer for the two year program. Someday. Maybe we'll see. I, I, if I, <laughs> the way it's going now, it would only take me another few years to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so you're pretty well-known name in the dog world. I think that everybody just about would be able to recognize you as watch your DVDs at some point or is at least familiar with a lot of your content. So what I'm really interested in talking about is how did all that come to be? I remember hearing that you were, you know, you have a like old school Schutzen background, correct? And I know that you were once upon a time very interested in pit bulls. Yeah. But can you tell us the story about who were your early mentors? How did you come into being a, the dog trainer that we are today? Yeah, Day one, today. where did you start? Like what brought you into the dog industry? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you want the the short version or the long version? Let's long go to the long version. version. We, we got nowhere to be. Okay, great. I got into dog training as a kid. So I got a finally convinced the parents to let me get a dog when I was 12 and uh, got a German Shepherd uh, from a pet store. And uh, the parents said, well, if you're going to have a dog, you you have to train it. You have mm-hmm. to take care of it. And so it just so happened that there was an active um, German Shepherd dog club in San Diego where I grew up. And so I took an obedience class and in the obedience class got involved with uh the people that were running it and they were longtime confirmation breeders and that thing with German shepherds and they did AKC obedience. Mm-hmm. And so through junior high and into high school, I was involved in, in that. I worked at their kennel off and on, uh, would kennel sit for them. And I got involved in uh, showing German shepherds, American confirmation line, German shepherds. Mm-hmm. And I did some AKC obedience in through that. But 
it was just what I did for fun uh, outside of all my other stuff. And then I was at a, actually at a dog show when I was in high school. I worked a summer for a veterinarian in Pennsylvania that was involved in dog shows. And so I was uh, staying there and I went to a dog show and they had a police and Schutzend demo at the dog show in Ohio or Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I saw that, I was like, okay, <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> That's where I'm headed, yeah. <laughs> and so when I got back, I started researching local Schutzen clubs. or And uh, so I got involved in the Schutzen movement in San Diego. Um, and so this was, I was 18 probably by this point in time. Mm-hmm. And still all just a hobby. And um, all the dogs I had were totally unsuitable for, <laughs> uh, for IPO. They were American show line, German shepherds. Yep. And, uh, so I started doing helper work because I was young and relatively able-bodied. And so I did that for a number of years. And then I got into working line German shepherds and it kind of just snowballed from there. But all the rest of the time I'm going to college, I'm working, uh, on a biology degree. I eventually finished a, a degree in biogeography and was going to go on and be a you know, conservation planner or a park mm-hmm. ranger or something like that. So always had an interest in animals. And uh, I had been pretty actively involved in IPO uh, and Schutzen by that point in time. And the last couple of German Shepherds I had had health problems or had working problems. So I started messing around with other breeds. Mm-hmm. And the other breeds that I, one of the other breeds that I tried for a while was pit bulls. And so I, I got a pit bull and I really liked the dog. And so began a kind of deep dive into pit bull culture and trying to find a pit bull to do sport work and things like that with. And I found that to be very difficult. There weren't a lot of suitable candidates from the pit bull community. And so I accidentally stumbled across Malinois in that period of time. And when I got my first Malinois, we just jived. Everything clicked. I'm like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. (laughs) I found you. (laughs) This dog and I get along great, and I was just lucky enough that my first one was a relatively good dog, and uh, that opened up a whole world. And so it was still all a hobby. I messed around with Malinois, traveled, played at sports stuff and things like that. I taught some obedience classes for extra money while I was in school. I worked doing some inboard training for a friend that had a kennel while I was in college just to make extra money, but no plans at all to make it a career. Mm -hmm. And then at a point... When um, I was in college or just after I moved from Southern California and one of the clubs that I had gone to uh, had a bunch of new members and they asked if I would come back and do some coaching with the new members. And so I did and it went relatively well. And somebody from that group told a friend of theirs in New Mexico who had a little club that I did a good job coaching them, I guess. And they asked if I'd come out and do a seminar for them. And I said, "Okay, sure. Why not? Right. And it just gradually took off from that a little bit at a time. So I woke up one day when my wife was in grad school and I uh, said, I I guess this is my job. One (laughs) seminar, two two turned into 10. And so at that point, I was basically traveling full time, uh, doing some pet dog stuff on the side in between seminars. Mm -hmm. But as the seminar thing picked up more and more, uh, that became my exclusive business. And so for 10 or 12 years, I traveled full time giving seminars. At the end, before I opened the school, the last four years before I opened the school, I was doing uh, about 45 seminars a year. Wow. I would fly out on a Thursday and do a Friday, Saturday, Sunday thing, fly home on a Monday or Tuesday and do it again the next week, Mm -hmm. almost every week, year round. And mostly within the US doing that then? 
in the U.S., but I did some in South America, some some in Canada, some in Mexico mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Did uh, you enjoy uh, that, Michael? Very much. Like I, I loved it. The, the traveling got hard, so that was the what kind of prompted the launch of the school. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, was I just couldn't travel anymore, <laughs> being away that much, and yeah. just the wear and tear. I was like, okay, so what's the next step? And I could have landed and started a dog training business. But at that point, I'd been coaching other dog trainers for more than 10 years. And so I decided to start the school uh, for trainers. But one of the things about the seminar circuit was that it was invaluable teaching experience for me and dog experience. Yeah, Like every week I could land at a different club or I did the National Police Dog Seminar a couple of times. I did seminars for uh, at Lackland Air Force Base, and in addition to service dog organizations and bite sport and sport dog organizations. And so I got a really different group of people every mm-hmm. time. I got a wide variety of dogs of every kind. And so you had to put your hands on and watch and troubleshoot with new dogs every week. And you got to practice teaching. And so one of the things that I figured out early on is it didn't matter how uh, if I was able to do something myself is, could I communicate how it was done and good principles to other people? Mm-hmm. And so I started leaning into the teaching thing and it was invaluable. I got to practice every week talking to a new group of people about dog training. And so at some point it was its own on the job education for what eventually became the school. Right. Yeah. It was a blast. I met tons of wonderful people all over the world and, you know, have great stories and it was fabulous. It really was, but taxing for those people out there in the, in the world doing on the seminar circuit. Now they can, they can vouch for the fact that it's, it, it's a, it's a grind if you have to do it forever. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at some point I've, I've backed off a lot on that. Yeah. The getting to the location is the great thing, but all the time in between, like sitting in the airport and waiting oh. around and transportation and then checking into your room. I mean, that, that just takes days of logistics to get over that before you actually get into the grind of getting, or not the grind, but get into the the yeah. meat of getting into the seminar and meeting people and doing what you enjoy. And then uh, once yep. that's finished, you've got to go through all the, the travel and the relocating <laughs> again, which is really a pain in the butt. It really is. I, I jokingly say I, I wouldn't wouldn't mind if I never saw the inside of another airplane. But <laughs> that's it's for the right after I opened the school. I'm like no seminars at all. I'm never doing them again. Uh, but as it's progressed, I've done some speaking engagements and I'll do a little bit of it. And I don't mind so much anymore. But right at the end, you couldn't pry me away from home. I'm like I don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't blame me. <laughs> It's pretty amazing though, like getting to teach your own content or just the content you know, getting to teach it over and over and over is a pretty awesome way to confirm it, right? For yourself and to get better at it yourself. Teaching, I think is sometimes, teaching to other people is sometimes the best way to really become excellent at something yourself. Oh, you're, you're spot on. That's exactly it. Like I, I tell students all the time now, like you can really solidify it in your own mind if you can convey it to someone else mm. to teach it. And then the beauty is if you're teaching a wide variety of people, everybody has a different learning style and yeah. you'll get the light bulb moment from somebody with a different way of explaining the same thing. So you cultivate five different ways of talking about the same principle in hopes of reaching everyone. And the more you do that, the more different angles you look at your own training from, the, the more solid it gets, the better you understand it. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting when I first started giving seminars, I wasn't prepared for the detailed questions that people were going to ask you. 
they asked you about every little thing you did. Mm -hmm. And some of the things you do, I hadn't really thought about it. Like it was just something you'd worked out instinctually over practice. So how you held the toy and presented it and which foot you were standing on or, you know, all little tiny things like that. And you're like, I'm like, hold on a sec. Uh, I don't know. Uh, give me a second here. Let me figure it out. <laughs> right? Why am I doing and, and that? It made you break everything down into little pieces and, and figure out what it is actually you were doing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually interesting because I think once you develop a style, you don't pay as much attention to the fine detail because to you, it's just what you do. But when other people want to know how you reach success or the language that you build around training your dog, then they want to know how did you do it and, and how can they emulate it or mimic it from you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely true. And then in recent years, like as you go forward in your teaching process too, then you realize that can you take principles and modify them to suit someone else as well, right? So again, there are people with different physical abilities and all that sort of thing. So can you take the same underlying training principles, good fundamental dog training, and modify your methodology so that someone else with different physical abilities potentially can execute the same things? Mm -hmm. And that became an interesting area of exploration for me. Like, oh, yeah, so – and as I get older, I appreciate it because I can't do the same things physically I could do when I was 25, mm. right? <laughs> and so suddenly I'm modifying certain things that I was doing before. But that really prepares you for helping people with a broad range of abilities is the, the idea that, hmm, okay, what is the foundational – what makes this technique work? And how could you take those same principles and apply it to some to someone else and, and modify the technique to suit them? And so teaching is full of those little puzzles for us, which keeps it endlessly interesting. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a craft in itself. It's like being multilingual. You can speak yeah. a variation of different languages to arrive at the same point. And if you can get your point across to an audience or a group of people who's still hearing the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the real skill set in itself. It, it is. It is. And if you pair that with the wide variety of dogs you see and how we have to make adjustments to every single dog, it, you know, none of us should ever be bored. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Hey, so I wanted, I was baiting you a little bit before to talk about the Pitbulls a little bit. Pitties are my favorite breed. And uh -huh. I don't own one. I would love to, but this is my theory. And, and I wonder if this is why you didn't go down the pity line is that the things that makes a pity awesome are also the things that make him not suitable for the bite sports. Like if the, the dog that has the type of drives that you want, it's hard to, it's unlikely to find one that will put those drives where you want them. If you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that that's part of it. So like pit bulls really, um, and now it's changed in the last 30 years and that you have pit bull enthusiasts doing all kinds of different things with pit bulls. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have, people people doing weight pull and confirmation shows and all kinds of stuff but yeah see for the history of the breed they were bred as fighting dogs they yeah. were supposed to fight with other dogs right and there had been an incredibly one-dimensional selection the old timers didn't care about anything uh, other than whether it was a good fighting dog and they didn't want them biting people because mm, they had to, had to handle them when they were fighting yeah and so they didn't like any kind of people aggression and they wanted really one-dimensional aggression, aggression towards other dogs, in a sense. And there was also no selection for taking and accepting control on drive, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that the layperson doesn't understand about 
um, a lot of the um, sport work that's done. It's not just the dog's raw motivation and drive for the activity is can you put controls on it mm. and still have the dog want to do it? And my experience with pit bulls, and I try, I had lots of pit bulls at various times <laughs> and uh, played with a lot of pit bulls, and I still I love them to death. They're really cool dogs. But one, they could be really sensitive to their handlers, much more than people thought they would be. Mm. They had tons of drive to bite stuff that you could hang off a, a spring pole in a tree for an hour at a stretch. But they were pretty sensitive to their handlers yeah. um, and sometimes to environments and noises and things like that, too. And then if you got one that wasn't and had a lot of motivation, they didn't take the control well. They would bite really well and play really well if you didn't ask for a lot of rules. Mm -hmm. But once you started enforcing rules, they sort of got sad <laughs> and they didn't maintain their <laughs> And so uh, it's not that there aren't individuals out there that are good, but there had not been a concentrated attempt by the pit bull community to breed dogs that took to the training well. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing that separates the traditional breeds for sport. They've been selected not only for motivation and specific skills, but also for the ability to handle control without being diminished by it. And so in your own breeding program, like your kennel name, Luke de Soleil, which by the way, is I still think the best kennel name I've ever heard in my life. Um, Thank you. <laughs> is uh, your, there's a real focus on that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started breeding Malinois, it was basically for myself and my friends that we wanted to produce dogs that we could play with um, that suited the way we like to train, basically. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about Malinois is as a breed, they're very unique in their ability to have huge amounts of desire to bite, especially for protection work. And mm -hmm. let's face it, they're bred for protection work, uh, protection sports. But they accept control really well, and you can expect you can ask for very very high levels of control, mm -hmm. and they take it without being diminished. And so that's a huge part of what I look for when I'm uh, dogs. Can they be put under control, and are they still motivated to work when they're under control? And lots of dogs can't. There, much of the dog community can't do that. And so that's a unique trait for for Malinois because they've been bred so long for those specific traits yeah meaning they they uh the sport like people malinois get put by all the kennel clubs in the herding group but malinois are not herding dogs yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> from from the early 1900s the selection criteria for them have been the knpv in holland belgian ring sport in belgium and french ring sport in france and yeah. so they're all they're basically biting dogs you know police dog style biting dogs for a hundred years now and, yeah and so with very concentrated emphasis put on high, high levels of motivation, athletic ability, and the ability to accept controls. Hmm. And something I also noticed about your dogs is like a, a seemingly insatiable food drive, right? And that's something that you worked. <laughs> did you, is that something you worked yeah. specifically to develop? Like you really put a lot of effort into that? Cause you know, I've seen like a lot of Mallies have like, what you'd say really good food drive, but yeah. not insatiable Labrador style eat till I'm dead food yeah, yeah. drive. No, it's something that we like. It's not the primary breeding criteria by any stretch, but it's definitely factors in. Like uh, I recognized early on, and we use food training a lot with our puppies. Mm -hmm. So the puppies that don't have good food drive are just a little trickier, right? It mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they don't turn out well, and they may not be good working dogs in the end, but it just makes our lives easier. So whenever possible, if I have choices, if I were selecting between two equal dogs, I would definitely 
take the one for breeding that has higher food drive. And so our dogs definitely like their food. Right. Yeah. And then we do, we also do things dynamically to intensify that. So one of the things that we do a little differently, I think, than, than some trainers is we use food dynamically a lot. We use food like a toy mm-hmm. and we make dogs jump for it and chase it and we run with it and we create kind of what would traditionally be considered play toy type games. And we apply techniques from that to creating desire for food. Mm-hmm. And some of the dogs that are, if you're just handing them pieces of food, have good to moderate food drive. If you start moving it around the right way and making them strive for it, you actually can increase their food drive there. Like yeah. Then they, they get really into the games that you play with food. So it's not it's not just food drive. But yeah, it's it's on the it's on the radar for sure. <laughs> That's not dissimilar to Bart Bellin's theory and methodology around training is that what we've fundamentally done is we've made dogs lazy around food. So we've created yeah. a dog that just sits there and waits for somebody to shove a bowl of gravy in front of its face rather than, well, I have a theory, which I'm going to run past you and see how you feel about it. But my theory is the best dog trainers in the world don't feed their dogs out of food bowls. They make food an interactive part of life. It's a it's a style of interaction between the owner and the dog rather than just placing it on the ground and walking away and just letting the dog build up a fat store from it. That's absolutely true. I would say most sport dog trainers, that's absolutely the case. And even some the most of the better pet dog trainers that I know uh, do the same thing. They try to create uh, an environment where the dogs have to work for what they get and they don't get it easily. And that's primarily our young dog and puppy program. The difference with my personal dogs is usually by the time they're adolescents, somewhere between seven months and a year, all that's been shifted to toys. Mm-hmm. And I'm not using food very much in training with my own dogs after they're a year old, unless I go to teach them some new trick or something like that. And at that point, they're getting food out of bowls. But yep. up until then, no, most of their food comes in training for sure. Everyone still feeds their dogs out of food bowls. Like it's not, I don't think it's going to change. And I mean, especially it can be a jackpotted behavior as well. Sure. That they can oh, yeah, do an yeah. awesome job and then go to get their food. Yes, absolutely. But, but there's still a relationship and if with you're the talking food. To, but if you were talking to the average pet owner uh, about improving their relationship with their dog and warding off all kinds of problems, if you could get them to stop feeding their dogs out of bowls, it would be, it would go a long way. Yeah, actually. it would solve a lot of issues, right? <laughs> Right away. Yeah. I often think about that when people, you know, explain to people, hey, you, we're trying to train this dog. We're fixing a, a an issue and whatever. And whatever asshole behavior he displays, you then just give him the giant jackpot yeah. almost immediately afterwards. It's like we, we should be using this resource that we have here. It's probably the best resource that we have. This is what we should be using for motivation. Yeah. And it's and it's all that the, the, the average person, the non-dog trainer has. They are not going to have play skills. They're not going to have other ways of motivating a dog. And so it's really the one thing that every dog needs to eat. So we have that as a, as a window in at least uh, Mm. with every dog. So, you know, um, talking about that food with play, uh, you know, when I attended your schools back in 2014, that was the the biggest takeaway for me. I was only there for the puppy development uh, course, Mm. but that was the biggest takeaway for me. I think you actually explained it in terms of uh, units of reward. Like if you just stuff a piece of food at, at the dog's face, that's one unit of reward. And then if mm-hmm. we make him chase us around and get it, we do that same piece of food 
becomes two or three units of reward depending on how hard we made the dog work for it and that's that reward event and that for me when I was at your school that was my aha moment sitting in the classroom I've got a big notebook with that scribbled and a big <laughs> a big um, asterisk around it a big it, love underlined. heart saying Pat loves <laughs> yeah. Michael cool. no but for sure that was the same thing I was like oh hang on like for the same effort from my point of view like I'm giving a piece of food mm. if I just give it differently I can bring on a lot more motivation absolutely and and even more so with dogs that have lots of predatory type behavior. Yeah. So mm. dogs that love to chase naturally, right? Then we access aspects of the self-reinforcing elements of chasing behavior, right? Mm. So these days, uh, like I spend uh, a lot of time thinking about uh, what's reinforcing to dogs, right? And why? And, you know, we talk a lot about uh, the things that we give dogs in training uh, as reinforcement for behaviors we want. And those typically are, I categorize as what we call external reinforcement, right? Mm -hmm. Your dog sits and you hand him a piece of food. The reward comes from outside, mm -hmm. but there's a whole series of types of behaviors that have uh, potential external reinforcement. They get something from the environment for it, but also internal reinforcement mm. that, you know, it's driven by the brain and body chemistry, you know, adrenaline, endorphins, dopamine, all the stuff that happens internally, especially. And so if we can access reward systems that tap into that as well, then the activity itself adds intensity to the reinforcement, right? Mm, and yeah. so movement is one of those things. Dogs, many dogs uh, get an intense internal, what we call self-reinforcing satisfaction from chasing. And it's brain body chemistry stuff and rooted in biology. And so those dogs, then, uh, you get double the reward when I make them chase their piece of food versus just hand it to them. Mm, right. For sure. So the other thing I want to talk about is, so we just mentioned that I, I attended your school a while ago in my, like mm -hmm. your name's in my bio, right? When I say this is who, how I got into dog training and I say, you know, attended the Michael L school for dog trainers. Whose yeah. name's in yours? Who was a big influence on you? Because I oh, think that's a good question. there's so many people yeah. that you are an influence on. And uh, I'm always curious to know, you know, where did that come from? Obviously, a lot of this stuff you developed yourself through experimentation and trial, and you've probably gone, had a lot of dogs come through your hands. <laughs> yeah, um, but like so everything that every dog trainer does is built on the shoulders of other dog trainers. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Like it doesn't, it makes no difference. Like this idea that somebody's developed some new system or some new secret thing. No, they haven't. Yeah. They may have not for a long time. Another way of looking at a, a, an approach or they've tweaked something, but the foundations of all that come from everybody else. We all stand on the yep. shoulders of a million people. Right. Yeah, sure. And so for me, the people that have influenced me have, like a bunch of them nobody would know, would never have heard of that the people that I encountered when I was a kid and starting mm -hmm. that, you know, I think like most people, when I started out in dog training, when you first get attracted to dog training, you have an idea of what it is, right? You have this kind of romanticized notion. You think like, oh, what's a police dog? So when I saw that first protection sport uh, demo at the dog show, I was like, aha, what's this, right? Like, I think it's going to be this. My dog's going to bite for these reasons or whatever the heck it is, right? But mm -hmm. you have uh, uh, a notion of what that is. And it turns out not to be that, of course, right? As soon as you get into it, it's much more involved. It's bigger. And throughout your dog training education, you may have been exposed to people that were brilliant that you weren't ready to receive what they were teaching. Yeah. You weren't at a spot where you could even take it in. And so over the course, 
the the old lady in the German Shepherd Dog Club. Her name was Harriet Gega, who got me started okay. as a kid. Like hugely influential. Like encouraged me to be curious about dogs. Gave me all kinds of like animal husbandry information and stuff like that that I had no idea about. Um, taught me about researching pedigrees, taught me about just good just basic dog handling and got me excited about the whole thing. So there are people like that. And then at, at various points, I early on in my career, I saw a Karen Pryor, Gary Wilkes seminar when was at the beginning of clicker training, right? Mm -hmm. That was right in the late 80s when clicker training and that idea of using rewards extensively in dog training was just starting to come out in a, in a mass way. Yep. And so that was, a, it sent me down a path and, and started making me think a certain way. There were a whole bunch of sport trainers in my early days, German guys that came over the guy named Wolfgang Gross, who came to our club when we were, when I was in San Diego, a guy that I learned was coming up decoying with at the same time in the club that I started in. His name was Gary DeHue. He was uh, a very good decoy and he was in the club at the same time. We're roughly the same age. And he, he's the one that got me interested in Belgian Malinois. We got interested in the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, like his, his um, mom was Belgian and his dad was an American serviceman. And he had Rottweilers, but he flew back to Belgium. And that started that whole path. I trained a lot with a trainer uh, up in L.A. named Al Banuelos, who had American Bulldogs and was very involved in IPO. And he was, at the time, uh, in DVG, a very active uh, trainer. Ivan Balabanov and I have been good friends uh, for a long time, and I learn something from him every time I see him and meet him, right? Like the guy is a dog training savant. Mm -hmm. He's a literal genius. And so I've watched, I've learned more just watching Ivan train his own dog at a certain point in my career than 20 seminars put together just by yeah. uh, what you're at a point where you can see somebody like that. So there've been tons and tons of people like this th throughout my life that I've met. And then when I'm traveling and you're doing sport dog stuff, a lot of it doesn't happen like this person mentored you. You ran into somebody and you had a conversation over dog training and you watched them train and you walked away thinking differently or mm -hmm. ready to experiment. And so, and so there, there's, it's an endless array of people for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> now, now, um, my brain's going a million miles an hour. Thank you for everything. And so while you were traveling around get, doing all these seminars, I know that you started out, you're just saying in a Schutzen club, you're mm -hmm. a, a big player in the American Mondio for a little while, right? And, and how did that come to be? Yes. So I was doing, uh, Schutzen IPO and my friend Gary, I mentioned, went to Belgium, discovered the Malinois from my perspective. And uh, when he came back, he had all these tapes of Belgian ring sport and things like that. Mm -hmm. And he brought back some older Malinois to sell to the police. And so we watched Belgian ring tapes and said, oh, that's really cool. What the heck is that? You know, because mm -hmm. uh, and so we bought bite suits and we started messing around. <laughs> it was involved with the San Diego Police Department because we shared a training field with them. Yep. And so he, he and I would decoy the their annual police dog trials and stuff like that. So we started to learn about suit work there. Mm -hmm. And then it was in the, um, and so my introduction to the Malinois was initially these uh, VHS tapes that Gary brought back from Belgium uh, of Belgian ring clubs in Belgium, mm -hmm. in the NVBK and the Verbond. And I was blown away. Both of us were like, we'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. We were totally 
okay, that's cool, right? And so um, as we did stuff here, it was the first seminar was in the that I went to was in the early night. There was no Belgian ring. It's only in Belgium. Mm. Uh, and although we were doing suit work and messing around with the suit with our IPO dogs and working some police dogs, we didn't weren't really exposed to ring. And there was a French ring seminar in California in the early 90s. I want to say 91, 92, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And so we up and went to that. And so I started messing with French ring at that point and started cross training one of my IPO dogs for French ring and got involved there. And shortly thereafter, the mid nineties, the first hints of Mondial ring started to arrive on the U S shores and Putinet in Texas, uh, started a club and Ron and Debbie Skinner got interested as well. And at that point I started to explore Mondial ring because it was the closest thing to Belgian ring that I could find. Right. Mondial ring is basically right down the middle between French ring and Belgian ring yep. borrows both. And so, since that I really wanted to do Belgian ring and it wasn't unless I moved to Belgium, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, I adopted Mondia ring. And so I got involved relatively heavily and, and started off. And then while I was traveling, doing seminars, a lot of the clubs that I went to were IPO clubs, but I would drag along my suit and take my dog and, and I, I'd, I'd either do some fun stuff with their dogs at the end of the seminar or mm-hmm. I'd work my dog a little bit. And started to try to generate interest for Mondial Ring in the U.S. And it's grown quite a bit. And a bunch of those IPO clubs that I visited turned out to do Mondial Ring. Awesome. <laughs> they, they, they split and had clubs that did both. Or some people that were involved in there learned about Mondial Ring through that. And so, and I still do. I just don't compete as much because I can't travel now. But mm-hmm. my young dog now, Monk, I'm, I'll probably trial him this next year. So oh, awesome. I still love I still love Mondial Ring. I just don't get to train as much as I'd like. Yeah, right. I didn't realize you were still competing. I, I thought it had been a long time since you competed. That's that's awesome. yeah. So, Pie and Strike were my two last two dogs that uh, I was competing with, and both of their careers ended uh, with injuries. Uh, and so it's been now about five years. Yeah, about five years since the last time I did a competition. Right. And so yeah, it's been a it's been a bit, but I I, I hang around. I'm involved and. Yeah, if I ever get more free time, I'll I'll be back in. But the the dog that I have right now, Monk, uh, is a pie grandson. That's a a really nice dog, and I'll probably put get get his titles this next year. Cool. Uh, as I go along, but yeah, yeah. Just, I, I still I, if I if I had my druthers, uh, I'd still do Belgian ring. But um, but Mondial ring is is a very cool sport. Yeah, Belgian ring is. Yeah, I love Belgian ring as well. Same deal. It's imp- just about impossible to do outside Belgium, right? I think you can technically have a club outside Belgium now, but um, yeah, logistically it's so yeah. hard to get it going, right? Yeah. The the whole thing is that you know they don't really have entry levels. Yeah, meaning they have easier trials, but your dog has to do all the stuff, all yeah. the jumps, all the ob- all the bite work at every level. You need two judges. You know, you need to bring in a certified decoy. So logistically, it's getting it up thing. and running with enough dogs to hold legitimate trials is almost impossible. Yeah, and it's sort of dying in Belgium, actually. If you talk to the Belgians, yeah, like they're everybody that does Belgian ringer, these old dudes. Right? It's it seems <laughs> that's happening sort of throughout Europe, right? With all the all the sports there are sort of becoming old man's games. Except IPO is the, the difference. Yeah. And, and it, it appears that Mondial Ring ha- has a, a little bit of a younger vibe, too. So I think a lot of the younger people coming up in sport in Belgium are either doing IPO or Mondial Ring instead of Belgian Ring. Mm. What's your thoughts around 
IPO at the moment, Michael? Like you've come from a an early background yeah. in Schutzen and now it's uh, evolved into IPO and now I believe it's going to IGP. Yeah, it's all the same thing, just changing the names for political purposes mostly, right? So yeah. Schutzen was was originally the, the German version and the international version of Schutzen was called IPO mm. and, and basically the same sport. In the early days, there were a few slight differences in the rules, but those merged uh, a long time ago. And so IPO and Schutzen, you could basically say have been the same thing. They got rid of the word Schutzen for political reasons because it means protection dog and they're fighting a lot of political pressure on protection sports in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so they changed the name. And now the new name has something to do with, you know, utilitarian working dog stuff instead of any reference to biting stuff. <laughs> but uh, I think it, it's evolved more than any of the other sports in terms of the training methodologies. Yeah. Right. And one of the things, and I still think some of the um, most impressive uh, advances in obedience work are happening from IPO trainers Mm. because you have multiple um, uh, evaluations put on them. So like in ring, it doesn't matter what your dog looks like as long as they do it. Yeah. So if it looks like you beat your dog and your dog still does it, you get the points, right? So in IPO, your dog has to be animated fast, precise, and look like they're enjoying themselves. Yeah. So you need speed and precision conflict with each other, right? The, the more animal hyped up I get my dog, the harder it is to get perfectly straight sits mm-hmm. and, you know, perfect fronts and all that kind of thing. And so I think that the IPO, the top IPO trainers are at the cutting edge of what's possible in terms of a dog's um, aesthetics, like a dog that really is enjoying what they're doing. They're doing everything with speed and energy and precision as well. I, what happens there in IPO and in the, in the audience, especially the bite work, uh, not so much, right? So yeah. the bite work, of course, is, it's, it's gotten better, like meaning the routines are very flashy and very precise, but they're not to a good dog. They're not challenging. Yeah. Uh, the challenging part is the obedience and the tracking and the stylized tracking. Yeah. I, I'm I'm a huge fan of the the precision in IPO. I'm, I'm always impressed by it, but it it's just such a sterile game, you know. Like and the, political. That's the that's well. There's the that. part that I don't like. There's about that, it. but just on political. the field, is that all it's dog just sports so... are political. I hate <laughs> <laughs> Some more than others. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's politics in all there. You get every organ dog organization I've been in. I've been on the board for the AWMA, the American Working Mountain Association and the USMRI, the Mondeering Association. And there's infighting and political crap. Mm. And when, when I was in dog shows, it was horrible. Like when I was in confirmation as a kid, you know, you go to a meeting and everybody's fighting with each other or something. Somebody Mm -hmm. has an agenda. That's just human beings. I think at some level it's unfortunate, but it is. Well, I think that nails it. I think when you get a large group of people together, the dynamic of it soon changes to somebody wants to be better than somebody else, and that's when the yep. political aspect not just be to better. Seep in. It's usually control. Somebody wants yeah, to control. Yeah, that's probably a better else. choice of words. Yeah, sure. you know, competition is a double-edged sword, right? Yes, like, it is. Competition breeds innovation. It's a lovely thing in that way. It makes trainers keep striving to get better, try to find a better way to, you know, try to construct the new mousetrap, whatever. Mm-hmm. But also, it brings out the worst in some people. You know, people start looking at their dogs as a tool. You know, winning means everything, and it's not about uh, 
I'm not about the, the journey anymore, not about the dog anymore. And that yeah. is unfortunate. We have to be constantly safeguarded against that. You know? Yeah. And the biggest problem I think becomes when people realize I can't win by getting better. Therefore, I have to make you worse. That's that's yeah. where we see the biggest problems in dog sports come around, I think. Yeah, that's the ugly. Super unfortunate. Mm. Hey, Michael, I just want to shift the focus back onto you. It's been great talking about the dog sport aspect. But uh, what I want to know is in your career, what was the turning point or the tipping point for you when suddenly you realized that what you were doing was important and the, you needed to tell other people? Like, when did you feel that you're at the top of your game? I hope I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I agree. I don't Good think answer. anybody can yeah, ever finish so, their education. But when did, know, when did it feel right for you? Like, when did everything start to balance out? And when you started listening to yourself teaching or educating or running seminars, what was the point where you thought to yourself... Like right now, I've got my game together. That's a super good question. Like it was a really sneaky thing. And I also try to banish those kinds of thought from my mind as much as I can, right? So if I think I've arrived somehow, then my own personal motivation to grow may be stunted. So I always mm-hmm. try to say like, ah, that wasn't as good as I think it is. I could do better than that. Yep. I could, I can... I can make somebody else understand. So I'm I'm careful about letting myself think that way. But also, I was doing seminars for a long time and just thinking that this was going to be temporary. Like I'm not a big plan ahead kind of guy, and uh, uh, for my at least not for my life and my career, it's just sort of happened to me a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. And so when I was traveling and giving seminars, obviously they got bigger. I got more requests. I got more requests than I could actually fulfill. At that point, I, I was like, hmm, I must be doing something right at this stage, right? Yep. And there was a point where in there, and I don't know exactly where it was, where I, I felt completely comfortable being dropped in a room or on a field with a bunch of people I'd never met and a bunch of dogs I'd never seen. And I felt, and I knew I'd be okay. I knew whatever happened, I was going to be equipped to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I, there was the sort of self doubt portion, like, Oh man, what, what if somebody asked me a question? I don't know the answer to, or what if a dog does this and I don't know what to do, like kind of thing I just didn't feel that way anymore. And there's a point when you're doing all that stuff and I don't know again, exactly where it was, but these days, uh, and at some point for a long time now, people don't really ask me questions that I haven't heard before yep. or I haven't really, or I haven't thought about at least, I may not have the, the right answer, but I I've been asked that before. And so that puts you in a, in a much more comfortable position and you're just like, nobody's going to surprise me now at that point, I think. And so hopefully somebody will, I like the last time somebody asked me a question I'd never heard. I'm like, Hey, <laughs> Whoa, ho, uh, let me think for that second. Right. Which I, I, I think is exciting. It's cool uh, that when that happens, but it doesn't happen very much anymore. Right. And so it was kind of a really gradual thing in there. And I, and I fight it. Like I think uh, the idea that you've arrived somewhere uh, it potentially stunts your personal growth. So I, that's I actually a great answer that. because I think anybody in any field, it doesn't matter what they are, whether they're a dog trainer or a doctor, I think they get to the point where, they can answer questions with competency that they actually feel happy with what they're doing. Uh, I know my wife, she does, um, mm-hmm. she just left a career in in a science background to go into a different type of science into natural medicine. 
And Mm -hmm. one of the things that she, like she researches all the time, like her spare time is spent researching. She's always looking up biology and fact checking herself just to make sure that when she does get a client in, they're asking her a question that she's comfortable with the answer that she's giving them. Like she wants them to leave knowing that she did the best she could with what she knew at the time. Absolutely. That's what we would hope that for everybody that has a job, right? Yeah, absolutely. what it is like i want my plumber to have that same yeah yeah for sure <laughs> that, same, that same mindset right you know excellence requires that of you right that mm-hmm. you 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 not be satisfied you you and you're going to evolve so like i look back and things that i've said in the past i would i would want to clarify mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily wrong but they were based on less information than i have now and i could have rounded things out and then there are other things i'm like oop i wouldn't do it that way now i'd do it differently and at a point where I was teaching people. And so that's going to hopefully continue to happen to me forever uh, that I change. And the, and the videos are a tricky thing for me that way. Like I go back and watch them and I'd like to redo them all again. Mm, that's what and, I wanted to ask and, you about. Yeah, yeah. That was a that was a good lead. <laughs> and if I could ask you a question on that, from the videos yeah. that you have done, is there one in particular that you look at and you're most proud of that one? Whew. That's a really good question. I think the train, uh, the power of training with food, mostly, and we redid that one a few years ago, mostly because I think it's had the largest influence. So some of the stuff that I really like, the DVDs that the, in the on the topics that I'm most interested in personally that get me excited, don't have as broad an appeal, and so that DVD got watched by. Uh, pet dog people and other trainers and that kind of thing. So I think just some good fundamental dog training principles got put in front of a lot of people with that one. So that makes me really, really happy. Mm. The motivation stuff is, and I would like to redo that one again because we keep kind of finding new, better ways to explain that stuff and get more detailed. But I'm a motivation junkie and I think that it's the most overlooked piece of the dog training puzzle, like mm-hmm. especially outside of sports circles, all the sport people, of course, recognize its value in, in creating these complex behaviors. But I think people underestimate its value in um, dealing with behavioral problems yes. and uh, for behavior mod and stuff like that. And so uh, getting people to think about ways of creating higher levels of motivation for reward systems for dogs. And so those two probably my, the recent, the most recent one that I did, I'm really happy with was a reshoot of our old formal retrieve DVD. And so I really, I was ha- very happy with how that went together. Uh, and usually the newer ones because they got better. So when it started, um, Ed, so um, Cindy came to, um, Ed's significant other, Cindy Rhodes, uh, came to a seminar I gave in Minnesota. And so she went back and talked to Ed. And so Ed came to another seminar I was doing in the Midwest. And he uh, uh, said, hey, you want to do DVDs? And I said, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but I travel all the time now and I just don't have the time to sit down and script them. And so the first number of DVDs he did just follow me around at seminars and videotaping seminars happening. Mm-hmm. And then he went back and edited them and released them. And so that's not the ideal way of launching the information. So obviously it would be better to sit down, write a script, you know, set up your shots, more organized, more concise. Yeah. And so as we've gone along, I still never have enough time to devote to those <laughs> the, as I'd like to because of the school, but they get better. They get better organized. They 
go together better. We know how to do that. So in that sense, the the later ones tend to be a little tighter mm. from a production value standpoint. Yeah. We were we were speaking off air before talking about people that have come over from Australia to see you like Sarah Wysom and Alex Edwards and so forth. And Mm -hmm. uh, you've certainly had influence on Pat and myself. I mean, I've got a great collection of DVDs from you. So you've been a mentor of both of ours and many other people that we know in our circle. And one thing, if I can pay you a genuine compliment, is that you have developed a very genuine language and a very good language with speaking to people. Like you can speak to people of all types of backgrounds. And I think you mentioned that before is one of the things that you feel comfortable with, but I found that when you're explaining something, you put a lot of effort and a lot of thought into the answer that you're giving people. And it's one of the things that resonated well for me, personally for me, was when I was watching you explain a scenario, I thought, I don't think I've ever heard anyone explain it better. Well, that's incredibly gratifying. Thank you so much. You know, that's what any teacher of anything would love to hear. So, uh, Thank you. (laughs) It was actually so good. It wasn't like I felt like I needed to contact you and ask you for clarification. I thought the explanation you gave was so good that you basically got it in one take. So it's pretty impressive stuff, mate. Thank you. Thank you. I'll weigh in at the moment as well. (laughs) (laughs) One thing, you know, I think I was probably one of the earliest Australians to go over there and I've been asked lots of times by people what it's like and whether it's worth the investment, the time to get there and to be away from work and that sort of thing. And the first thing I always say is I say, before we talk dogs, I say the first thing you have to know about Michael is that he has the patience of a saint. And I think you can see that in a lot of the DVDs. Absolutely. In that, and it was true of, there was a person who was there when I was there that just the red herring questions that people want to ask <laughs> and the pointless, like from, you know, like this doesn't relate in any way, shape or form, but how do you feel about this? Or then you'll answer that. And then they ask you the exact same question just with the verbs moved slightly. <laughs> you can answer it. And you, so you move your verbs and give it the same answer again. I think that's that's what makes you an impressive yeah. teacher, being able to do that. Mm. Even if you had well, no thanks. skill with dogs, just having that <laughs> skill alone is is very important. Another one of those things that I learned I learned on the seminar circuit, right? So there's no point in losing your patience yeah. because it do, it doesn't serve anyone, right? At the end, they're not going to hear what you say. And so one of the things that I discovered when I was traveling and teaching so much was that our job is to relentlessly give the information over and over again. And Mm -hmm. if somebody asks me the same question the fourth time, then I answer it like I did the first time Mm -hmm. Uh, or I tweak it a little bit thinking maybe they didn't understand what I said the first time. And it's a, it's a teaching strategy. It's not always easy. Some days you're like, are you kidding me? Really? But you can't let on and you just go and do it. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, I know we're both crushing on you a little bit, but, there's there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of there's a lot of people that i know who have experienced your teaching in one form or another but one of the things that i think is impressive michael from your aspect or my aspect of you is that nobody's had a bad michael ellis experience that i know of wow that's an impressive thing in this industry i don't know if it's true but but just the fact that it feels like that is just Amazing. Yeah, but it it might not be true in all circles, but but the people that I speak to that have purchased the DVDs or have traveled over there to see you, everybody that I've spoken to and I ask for feedback, like, what was it like? What did you learn? They always come back and say, it was amazing. Like, I 
I went over there with big expectations and it was actually better than that. So, I mean, that's really something. That's a quite a compliment, I think, for anybody in any field. Whatever you're doing, mate, keep doing it because you're really Thank cranking you. out some impressive information for generations of trainers. And I think as a teacher, there's no greater compliment than having students that are just – it gives them more inspiration than what they went there. I think that's just awesome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a, I, okay. I don't even know what to say. That's incredible. So, <laughs> Pat, so Pat's going to burst our bubble here. We fluffed you up. Get ready for this question. <laughs> can, I, can, I bottle, can I bottle you guys for, uh, for, for when I get low? Like, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Just flip. I'll play it back at myself when I get down. <laughs> um, so – you know, I think you've heavily influenced loads and loads of dog trainers around the world. People you've never met just through your DVD series, they're all over the place. People watch them, they know them. Bart as well, you know, I've been a student of Bart's for a number of years. Yeah, of um, I, he's one of the people that I didn't mention as an influence and he was a huge influence, right? So yeah, I think I, talk, I talked to him years and years ago and he is absolutely revolutionized how people use the electronic collar. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and and Ivan, I've never, I've met Ivan, I haven't really trained under him. The three of you guys, I think looking at your dogs and looking at your uh, history and competition, the three of you guys together are probably the most influential dog trainers, you know, on the world, I would say, in the balance training camp or fraternity. Wow. I've seen your name mentioned in, Lately, many, many years ago, when I first got into dog training, I was involved in the balance versus positive, you know, debate and I would get involved in it. And oh, yeah. I just completely stopped after a while. I just hung up my guns on it when I realized one day that I was giving people I didn't like my time trying to convince them of something while I was charging people I did like in order to teach them that same thing. And so I just stopped. Yeah. But recently I've been engaging with some more force-free people and getting mm -hmm. into groups. And I saw your name used recently as an example of someone using the electronic collar in a way that was above reproach because you can see on your dogs, your dogs aren't demotivated. They're mm -hmm. happily complying and they're working. And it was very interesting for me to see you used an ex as an example of a balance trainer that, well, this is, it was actually, the context was interesting. They were saying that we have to stop mentioning this guy because he you're, disproves you're giving, giving business to well, him. Well, mm. he disproves everything we're saying. Mm. We're saying that the electronic collar shuts dogs down and is a punish a cruel punishing tool, and you need only look at his dogs, and you, you can no longer say that. And then, as I watch this conversation unfold, the video of Barton Thor gets put up, and then the same um, similar videos of Ivan get put up. So the three mm. of you were all in this same conversation. They were the feel was like these guys are fucking up what we're talking about because. <laughs> We'll call you guys the Mythbusters. Yeah. So I wonder if you have experienced any feedback on that sort of thing, being as well-known as you are, mm. you know, you're a bit of a target in that regard and you run courses on the electronic collar. Like, you know, Bart is just known for that and it's not like he's, it's water yep. off a duck's back to him. It doesn't, in any, no one goes after Bart because they, there's nothing. He doesn't they, care. He doesn't give a fuck. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> and so. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, for sure. So a couple of things that what you you're, you said bring up for me. One, one I would say both Ivan and Bart are better competition trainers than I ever was, and a nod that way. I don't want to be put in the in the same uh, competitive trainer category of those guys. Okay, but my training uh, because competition is secondary to me ultimately, right? So I love dog sport, but I'm 
I'm interested in the teaching process. And when it hits the finishing process, I begin to lose some interest in it. And I'm not super competitively driven to go out and win. Mm-hmm. Like I love the process of training. But that said, um, they are, we all are examples of literally thousands of trainers around the world using the collar correctly. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's all about what the dog knows when you're applying aversives to them, right? And so the e-collar is like any aversive we could use on a dog. It can be used subtly, it can be used intensely, and how the dogs look and how they take that information is a fundamental function of the teaching process. What did they know? Do they know what their job is? Are they clear about their job? And then when you hold them accountable for their job, they don't have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. And they won't show you all the stress signs that a dog that is learning under stress, that doesn't understand what's expected of it, that doesn't have a clear teaching process in place and you're applying pressure to them, and that compounds that stress. Mm. And, And so there are people certainly that give me grief. There's lots of all positive or I don't know, like the reward based only uh, trainers out there mm-hmm. who I'm sure uh, say bad things about me and their discussion forums and all that kind of stuff. None of that bothers me, of course, because I don't I don't like the arbitrary camps that we put ourselves into anyway. Right. Sure. It's all about dog training as a holistic enterprise and us finding the balance for the specific dog in front of us. But what is gratifying to me to some degree is I teach an electronic collar class and I deliberately have no prerequisites to come take that class. Mm. Right. And I did that consciously. Everybody that takes that class should have taken our, our core obedience class in a perfect world. They would understand all the basic obedience principles for teaching these behaviors before we would use an electronic collar on them. Mm -hmm. But I deliberately didn't do that so that I could talk to people before they use the collar. And if I put too many hurdles up in front of them, they might choose not to. And so I just want to be able to talk to people about the collar. And I've had a ton of well-known reward-based trainers come to find out how to use the collar correctly Mm -hmm. because they'd run into a client here or there that had a problem that they knew it was the best solution. Although they were resistant to using it and they knew that their community was going to look down on them, Mm -hmm. they were willing to come and they chose to come and have me teach it to them. And that was incredibly gratifying. That's cool. So yeah, that's the people that are going right to say, say bad stuff. They just don't understand. And so I don't take it too personally. Like the people that camp up and attack you from either side, mm-hmm. the extreme pressure trainers, the no foodies and the, the other end of it, the all, the all positive or what, for want of a better term, reward based trainers. When they attack you, they're coming from a place, a lack of understanding. So I, it makes it easy for me not to take that personally and I would love to be plunked down in the middle of the, you know, clicker expo and, and talk to those people, Yeah, you know, of course they'd never have me, but I would love to have that discussion. Right. So, yeah, it's a funny one. It's been a theme on the show for, I don't know, about a month now. We've, it's somehow come up quite a bit. We haven't really discussed the camps at all. And then it's been coming up a little bit recently. And I think like for me, the more I think about it, the more I distill it is, I think that you should really, the way you train dogs should only be defined by, first of all, your performance, like can the dog do the things that you're saying, but then yeah. the attitude of the dog in doing those things. And if your dog can do them, but looks like shit, then you're not worth paying attention to. And if your dog can't do anything you say, then you're not worth paying attention to. But if you've got <laughs> a dog, if you've got a dog that 
under distraction, maintained flashy, looks like he loved the work. And it's all about the, the, you know, as Bart says, the heart and soul. So long as, as long as that is your pillar for ethics, you use that as the pillar for ethics. Like my dog looks good and a dog can't fake looking good. He only looks good when he feels good. Yep, um, 100%. Yeah. So if I use that as my pillar for ethics, I'll never run into a problem and I'll never, I'll never find myself having to answer questions I'm uncomfortable to ask. Yep. Sorry, and answer questions I'm uncomfortable to answer. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. I tell everyone, like, just if you want to know whether you should listen to a trainer, go watch them with their own dogs. Yes. Like, that, yeah. they'll tell you everything. But, um, can- our club motto is cool story, show me your dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have yep. t shirts at our PSA club. Say that on the front. And I, reg- <laughs> I regularly, when people are talking to me, just sort of point to it and nod and go, okay, go get your dog out. Like, let's see. Let, let's see. Show me what you're talking about. I, Time for talk is over. Yeah. <laughs> so, Michael, we've talked a lot about dogs and your history and some of your thoughts around that. What about your downtime when you need to download from dogs? What piques your interest then? I'm really into birding, so I'm into I'm into lots of uh, natural science stuff. So I'm into ecology and that kind of thing. But one of the big ways I relax is I uh, go look at birds and identify birds and that kind of thing. Yep. Used to do a a lot of uh, backpacking and hiking and things like that. And these days I I stay home and garden and play. I keep racing homing pigeons. Mm-hmm. So I that's another little side hobby. I haven't been super active lately because the school's kept me so busy, but I, I always have pigeons and uh, I'm into that a bit. Food and wine. That's another big hobby right now. What's that one? Sorry. Food and wine. Oh, oh yeah. 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 I'm a fan of that. <laughs> I'm definitely a fan. I'm down with that. another huge hobby these days. <laughs> Especially where you live, right? You're still in the Napa Valley there? Uh, Sonoma. Hey, watch out, buddy. Oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so when you do come to Australia, Michael Ellis, when you do come to Australia, yes. I'm sure that we'll treat you to a culinary delight of food and wine and also uh, a- appeal to your uh, avian comforts. Yeah, you guys you guys are in a really good position for a good sell there, I have to say. Yeah. Like, <laughs> one of the, like, I've always been into birds, but the thing that triggered my crazy bird passion now was a trip to Australia like 20 years ago. So Mm. I got a bird ID book when we landed at the airport at a bookstore in Melbourne uh, right right after we left the airport. And that the whole rest of the trip became about that. I was losing my mind at the birds. So I'm like, this place is amazing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's an astounding collection of birds, especially up north in the tropical regions where they start to get quite abundant and colorful. But I mean, yeah, there's some great bird viewing all around the country. Oh, everywhere. It's insane. Your, your country rocks for that. And you guys have some pretty good wine and food. Oh, yeah. 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 The Australian wine and food wines is... are kicking ass these days. So mm-hmm. we're, uh, we're right, stealing, we're right stealing right New Zealand's right. wine too and making it our own. So that, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> we, do that do with great we do that with everything out of New Zealand. Yeah. People, <laughs> crowded house. Yeah, little New Zealand over there. Russell, we'll Russell Crowe. Yeah. We just, yeah, we, we that's just where steal we them and make it ours. Tasman, guys. We're all together. Anzac, bro. Yeah, exactly. Hey, just out of curiosity, just because I know how into the dog training you are, you said you have racing pigeons. Um, yes. Do you compete with them? Is that a thing that? Yeah, yeah. Because I know this last year, I took this last year off from flying, but just because I just didn't have the time to do it right. But yeah, no, absolutely. It's a uh, it's an old sport. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually reasonably 
Uh, it's practiced quite a bit in Australia, but it started mostly in, in Western Europe. So mm-hmm. Belgium, uh, Holland, France, Germany. And uh, so you basically have pigeons that come home. And so they're like, and you train them, exercise them, take them out short distances, progressively take them further. Mm-hmm. You put these little identification bands on them. They get boxed up and shipped off to races at a distance and everybody's birds return to their homes and they know the exact distance between the release point and everyone's home and they figure out which bird flew fastest and you compete against other people with your racing pigeons. I don't know in America, but I know in Europe it is, it's big business, right? There's some huge money. Oh yeah. Yeah. Makes dogs look cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's like any in dogs, typically people aren't competing for money in any of the dog sport Mm. and that's tends to be drive the value of the animal. So like racehorses are expensive because they race for lots of money Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's the same with racing pigeons. So Belgium and Holland, especially almost every year, the, the top pigeons in those countries, the ones that win the national ace pigeon award and that kind of stuff get purchased by rich flyers around the world. And Mm. I think last year, the Belgian national ace broke the world record for the most paid for a pigeon. And it was uh, about um, 600,000 us dollars. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Cause I, oh my God. <laughs> it's crazy. I've heard of, I've heard of like up to $50,000 stud fees on birds. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 Like there's a famous, there's a really rich guy in the U S named Mike Gannis and he has a big loft and he, he goes every year and buys the top pigeons and, in Belgium and Holland. And if there's a, if there's a special pigeon that's won a bunch of races, he goes and just throws money at the guy to give him the birds, but he's, and he brings them back and then he breeds from them and the babies get sold. He, so he'll put them, if it's a, a male, he'll put them on a polygamous breeding program and they'll raise, you know, a hundred babies a year, wow. but he'll sell all, he'll sell those babies for, you know, three, four, $5,000 a baby. Right. Wow. So, yeah, it's a, it's it's it can be it can be big business. So for sure. stay stay but tuned, kids. Like anything else, there's lots of people that just do it like for a hobby. We don't fly for money; we just fly for. for it's fun. a funny one because we just know nothing about it here. And like I think there's it's even you can't even hang washing on the line on Sundays or something. Is that the, the deal with that in in Belgium? Oh, in certain yeah. So especially in little countries like Belgium, so it was considered the national sport of Belgium. It, it's it's dying down a little bit, but mm-hmm. you know, 50 years ago there were like 300,000 pigeon flyers in Belgium, wow. which is, it's a tiny little country, yeah. right? And so they live, people tend to live in the towns and they have little rooftop lofts and garden lofts and that kind of stuff. So if they re- release a big race in Belgium on the weekends, you know, tens of thousands of pigeons are returning to mm. town. And yeah, if your laundry was hanging out, it would probably get hit by one eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably true. Here in the States, we wouldn't have that problem. We're way too spread out. Like same as Australia. Yeah. Like we're all geographically spread out. And so there's, there are not a whole bunch of the flyers right on top of each other. Like they are in the little towns in Europe. Did Bart ever get involved in pigeon racing? You know, I don't know. I never asked him. Right. So mm. I was into really into pigeon racing as a kid. And then uh, once I got to college, you I mean you have to be stable. You have to have a house. You have to be in one place to do it. Mm. And so I didn't have birds for a long time. And I got them again about you know eight or nine years ago and started messing again. But so the t- last time I talked to Bart, I wasn't doing pigeons. So I, I I wouldn't know to ask him. I'm sure he knows. He's got friends that fly pigeons. Yeah, for sure. if it's he, he com- have to. if it's competitive, Bart would be involved in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, do you think I on the? I guarantee he has buddies that yeah. Play pigeons. Yeah. Do you think on the landscape, Michael, there'll be a DVD, How to Train Your Pigeon, Michael Ellis? Uh, no. 
(laughs) I'll stay in my wheelhouse, right? (laughs) Sounds good. That one's supposed to be a distraction. Yeah, no, I agree. I think think that's important. Yeah, that's important for mental health. I think that you have something that you can have a little time out on and it's a good go-to place and then you can get back into your dogs when your brain's feeling right again. Uh, Amen. Mm. Amen. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Can you just tell us a bit about the school? Because I know that having spoken to you now about it, that people, this is going to stir up a lot of people who are going to then be contacting me saying, hey, what about the school? And I don't want to answer those questions. So (laughs) tell them now so that I don't get harassed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first, let me say thank you guys so much for having me on. Oh, uh, our pleasure. Absolutely. You guys, you guys are great to talk to. So it's, uh, thanks, for, thanks for taking hey, the time. Hey, let's do it again one um, day. We can actually talk about a, a subject if you're up no, for I'd it. love to. Yeah. Heck yeah. I absolutely would love to do it. Awesome. Um, so the school, uh, we have a whole variety of things. It's in a state of evolution always in that with our long-term program, kind of the, the thing that I and putting a lot of energy into these days is our immersion program, like I mentioned already, which is a four and a half month program where mm-hmm. students come and stay. And the facility that we're in has, uh, we have some on-campus housing and training facility. We have a dock pool and training fields and stuff there. And so it's sort of a self-contained unit uh, for the long-term students. They can really immerse themselves. Cool. But we still also offer a whole series of week, what we call weekly classes and I'll continue to do that. I will never get rid of them because uh, lots of people just can't logistically make the longer term programs. And those are one and two week long classes on a wide variety of subjects from we have obedience classes, motivation classes, advanced obedience classes, e-collar classes, uh, management classes on how to manage a dog, not how to manage a business or anything mm-hmm. like that. And protection classes. Like, so obviously I keep the protection classes because it's my passion, but it's, you know, not wildly popular in the dog training community at large but for me it's it's a really we, we've seen you in your uh, lycra in, in your ah, colorful yes. lycra pants <laughs> yeah <laughs> your multicolored <laughs> my my skinny chicken legs right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. so with the school you're there pretty much most of the time right but you you do have also instructors that work for you at the school yeah and that in, increasingly so so our detection dog trainer has now come onto the school full time. Her name's Erica Duggan, and she's uh, t- been hanging around for ten years. We're good friends, and she's a lovely trainer. So she's on staff, and we have a series of guest instructors that come in. We have people come in and cool. uh, teach diff- different segments for us uh, on different subjects. Uh, actually, you guys probably know Forrest. Forrest is uh, yeah, we know Forrest uh, well. Yeah, he Forrest stayed here in. a bunch of times. Ah, cool. Yeah, Yeah, he's uh, coming in to do a little bit of stuff uh, for us too lately. And so that's, it's all cool. But yeah, I I would love to build, um, my dream is obviously so that I don't have to teach every single class Mm -hmm. and that I would be able to teach specific subjects and do kind of Q and A's with the students and then have other staff teach certain specific subjects and then kind of run a lot of the base practical stuff uh, to get the nuts and bolts out of the way. And so we're, we're moving increasingly towards that model, but right now outside of the detection classes and some of the practicals that get run by staff, I still do pretty much all the teaching, the lecturing and the question and answer stuff and that kind of thing. Cool. And how can people get in contact about that? 
Yeah, so just michaelellisschool.com, and you can email us through that, that, our website. We're actually right around New Year, we're about to launch a brand new website, which will have a whole bunch of new features and that kind of stuff. So it's been (laughs) like nine months of work, but it's finally going to go up, I think. But michaelellisschool.com, and you can email us at uh, michaelellisschool at gmail.com. And if you have any questions, just shout out. We got you. And they can certainly uh, watch some of your great work on the Leerberg videos as well. And I teach a couple of online classes for Learberg, all the DVDs. And then Learberg has a YouTube channel where they uh, upload a whole bunch of my stuff on there, too. I haven't looked in ages, so, but I understand there's a fair amount of free content on Learberg's uh, YouTube of mm-hmm. me yapping away at the camera. So if somebody wanted to get a feel for uh, what it's going to be like to stand, sit in front of a class in front of me for eight hours. There, there is so much content of you out there, which I think is really awesome. Like I, it would be just about impossible, I think, to measure the outreach that you've probably had in the wider dog training community worldwide of people who have at the minimum watched the YouTube videos, if not purchased or DVD or shared around DVDs, you know, I shouldn't uh, say that it'll get angry at people sharing DVDs, but, but <laughs> people don't do that, do they? No, not at all. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the like the number of people that you've influenced on, I think, would be astronomical. And so, um, anyway, yeah, congratulations on that. I think it, it's excellent. Hey, before Thank we wrap you. up, too, if it wouldn't mind me asking you a question, which we try and ask a lot of our guests. Yes. Are you reading any good books, or would you recommend any good books? Is there a list? Yeah, there is a list. I, you know what? I'm gonna po- I'm gonna post my my list somewhere where I can just send people to it. Like I give out a reading list to my students in class a lot of times the, yeah. of some of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. And so I'm super enamored. Like I don't think books are the best way to to talk about dog training. Mm-hmm. So most of my favorite dog books are either science books yep. where you get kind of the nuts and bolts of what's behind, or just books of historical interest. Okay, right. Meaning they, when they came out, they influenced the way I thought about dogs or they were like histories. Like I love all Donald McKaig's books about herding dogs, mm-hmm. um, Nops Trials and Eminent Dogs and Dangerous Men and all those books are great. I One book that I recommend that everybody read is uh, Pamela Reed's book, Accelerated Learning. Yeah, if you want, definitely. If you want a good, easy to read learning theory book, everyone should grab that. I love Ray Coppinger's books. He was a professor at Hampshire and a biologist, mm-hmm. not a dog trainer at all, but he talks about the evolution of the domestic dog and lots of good stuff in there. He passed recently or a couple of years ago, I suppose, but he was a super entertaining dude, but also just an interesting way of thinking about, you know, the dog is not a wolf and, and some of that stuff that I think is important. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of actually books on mammalian psychology, I mean, mammalian physiology now, stuff's related to brain chemistry. The mammals all have similar brain chemistry. So I'm very interested in what's happening inside the dog now during mm-hmm. certain things. Mm-hmm. So, so the role, of, there's, there's a really interesting professor at Stanford named Robert Sapolsky. Mm. Yeah. And, and he talks a lot. He had some of his lectures are online. You can see him on YouTube and Ted talks and things like that. And he's talking about primate behavior, but the brain chemistry is basically the same for dogs. And so that kind of stuff interests me yep. a bunch specific dog books. Um, what else? Have you read Lindsay's manuals? The handbook oh, of yeah. applied got, dog training yeah, yeah, and behavior. Yeah. yeah. All, all of the Lindsay volumes. I tell people they're hard, really hard for people to get now 
since they're out of print, mm. people stru- struggle actually finding them. But they're on my reading list for sure. Stephen Lindsay's books, yeah, those are are great. A little overwhelming for somebody starting out. Absolutely. Once you get to a point, it's really interesting to see a kind of survey of the science out there. He does an incredibly thorough job of that. I call it Grey's Anatomy for the dog trainer. Yeah. And there are people like Gene Donaldson's book, Culture Clash. Like I have that on my reading list and that people get furious with me for putting that on there. (laughs) because Gene is like as far an all positive nut. As, I'm sorry, I'm nuts, probably not the right word. All positive. Well, she's pro- a lady that lets pro- her dog hump her, so. <laughs> pro- pro- proponent <laughs> as, as exists. But when that book came out, it was a point in my dog training evolution where I was training very traditionally. And because that's all I knew, like I learned, like mm-hmm. most trainers that came up at when I came up, you learned how to use a choke chain and a six foot leash and you did everything with that. And so. When I read that book, it was kind of like, this is what people need to hear. You know, dogs aren't people. You have to try to think about it from a dog's perspective. There's another way of thinking about why a dog's doing what they're doing. And so I think that book at the time was incredibly powerful at voicing some of the concerns with totally traditional methods of training. Mm -hmm. And so I know she gets held up a lot now and skewered a lot uh, as having gone off the cliff on that front. And it's, it, it's true. I think we need to swing the conversation back to a reasonable dialogue, but that book was incredibly influential at the time and definitely helped me think differently about it. And so there, that's when we were talking before about influences, there are books and things that you read at a certain time that you look back now and you think, Oh, those oversimplified. It's this, but at the time it allowed you to look at the whole thing differently. Yeah. And, opened up a different world on the other side of that for you. And it's so part of I'll your evolution. Be, yeah, absolutely. I'll always be grateful for that kind of stuff. So, mm. yeah. Something you just triggered me when you uh, were mentioning wolves not being dogs. And I mentioned it earlier. Loop de Soleil, can you please explain? Uh, I still think that's the best kennel name I've ever heard. Yeah. How so, did you come up with that? And tell everyone so, what it means. Absolutely. So we, we started, my friend Lisa Mays and I, we trained in the same club and we – decided to breed dogs under the same kennel name. We would do it kind of collectively. And all of our breedings have been either both of us doing it together or one of us doing it and using the same kennel name. But we lived in San Diego and grew up in San Diego. And there's a very famous French kennel called Le Mouton. And Le Mouton is a red wolves, basically. And that kennel was super hot at the time we started breeding dogs. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to do a Frenchy thing. And I like the idea of wolves. And we lived in San Diego. We're in the desert. So basically it means sun wolves, right? Mm -hmm. So we took the sunny Southern California thing and kind of piggybacked on Le Mouton, the French kennel, and gave ourselves a French-sounding kennel name. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I I think it's awesome. Your logo and everything's awesome. It wasn't until I was at Cirque du Soleil that I was like, oh, it's the same. It's the sun. And then it all made sense to me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, it's it's sun wolf. I get it. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> hey, Michael, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, a, a pleasure. It's been mm. fun to chat with you. I, I'd love the opportunity no. to do it again. And maybe we can talk, as Glenn said, maybe we could talk about something specific. A subject matter. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Be happy to do it, guys. I really appreciate it. You guys are, like I said, are great to talk to. And I uh, appreciate you spreading uh, this stuff around. Like the more people get on these things and talk, the hopefully good training and information and is out there in the world. So, well, you're an absolute gentleman, Michael, and you've always 
spoken to people without the impact of ego. And I think that's a wonderful thing as well, because there's, as I said, a lot of people have had an absolutely fantastic Michael Ellis experience. And that's because you've been a great teacher and you've done it in such a way where, as Pat mentioned as well, you've had the uh, patience the, of a saint, the patience of a saint. And I think that uh, that speaks volumes about who you are as a person that you can and listen to people and then still get your message across. And it's certainly been the the feedback that we've gotten from so many people. And even, like I said, just watching the distance learning that we've got to experience. I know Pat's been over there and done it with you, but I haven't had the pleasure, and but I have had the, the experience and the wealth of knowledge that you've provided through your online and DVD services. So from me to you, mate, thank you very, very much. And I'm sure I speak for a lot of other people when I say that too. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that on whatever subscription service you download from and uh, tell a friend would really help us spread the word. If you want to help support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month will get you a exclusive content that we put out once a month. We were a little delayed on getting the other one. We had technical issues this month, but it's up now. So we're, we're ready and rearing and we'll be recording next month soon. And I'm still working on a Christmas present for all you Patreon guys. So stand by, that's coming. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via Facebook. We are The Canine Paradigm on Facebook. That's it. Michael, thank you. Glenn, music. Music.